Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Let's get at the uh, Roe versus Wade decision by the Supreme Court of the United States. We're joined by Professor Anne-Marie Lofasso. She's the Arthur B. Hodges Professor of Law at West Virginia University College of Law. And uh, the professor said when she joined us, I think it was two months ago when we first heard about this going to happen, said that the decision would have a significant impact on people's trust in the high court. Professor Lofasso, thank you for coming back on the program. What's your view of the decision taken by the court, by the majority of the court? Well, first of all, Roy, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, the majority of the court has essentially eviscerated 50 years or almost 50 years of precedent um, for a woman's right to um, make decisions about her um, future, about her, about her reproductive freedom. What, but that's sort of the, the minor story here. What the major story is, is that the court's reasoning, which is that there was no right to an abortion at the moment in 1868 when the um, 14th Amendment was ratified, and there was no right in, but, uh, for abortion in the Constitution at its founding, is, um, is very troublesome because there, at those times, there was also, in most states, not a right to interracial marriage. There was not a right to same-sex marriage. And it's also what it does is it freezes in time uh, the idea of what was liberty in the mid-19th century. And importantly, what was liberty in the 19th century did not include women and reluctantly included non-white people, so non-white men. Um, and frankly, it didn't even include all white men. So that that is a very troublesome view. Is it your concern then that the uh, matters that you raised, that you just raised, same-sex marriage, um, interracial marriage, may be targeted or visited by the Supreme Court of the United States? And I'm just curious, does the court have the, the power to initiate this kind of um, decision-making, or is the court mandated to make decisions only when there's an impasse at the lower levels? No, the, the court cannot initiate anything. It, there has to be a case or controversy. So there has to be a case that's brought to it. So someone would have to complain about a same-sex matter, or there would have to be, um, say, a state would have to pass a ban on same-sex marriage. So for, just like what happened on here, abortion. Well, here on abortion, yes. 
But I was I thought you were asking about in the future. Yeah. So oh, yeah, it no, I, I did, but I'm just trying to make the comparison. Mississippi brought up the issue of abortion, so that ended up in the Supreme Court. So another state might bring up the issue of same sex marriage or interracial marriage, and that winds up at the Supreme Court and then you have what you have. Right. And Mississippi only banned abortions after the fifteenth week, but then it switched course. So it only it didn't ask for Roe and Casey to be overturned. It only asked for it to uh, to get rid of the the court to get rid of the viability standard and say that a woman's right to choose is um, is um, subject to a balance by the state to determine uh, when that when um, that right when the rights of the unborn fetus is um, overtakes the woman's right to choose. So they that state decided that was at 15 weeks. But then at the, so that was when they asked the court to review it. At the merit stage, they then switched course and said, yes, we want, we actually want you to overturn Roe versus Wade. So another so we, state could just do the something else. It could put like some sort of um, minor uh, barrier or major barrier to same sex marriage and then ask the court to say, is this okay? And then re- ask the court, to then overturn Obergefell or other so precedents. you would have concern that perhaps now that Roe versus Wade has gone through the Supreme Court of the United States, there may be other issues such as uh, contraception, same-sex marriage, interracial marriage, that could also find its way to the Supreme Court of the United States, which could then also issue um, decisions that the majority of people would say, would consider today to be impossible. Correct. Correct. How concerned, how concerned um, are you about that? I'm sorry, why, how concerned am I? I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm very concerned. Now, if you read Justice Kavanaugh's opinion, he says that we shouldn't be afraid of that because he says he agrees that the Constitution isn't frozen in 1868. But that's that's one justice, right? And it seems somewhat arbitrary. So it's frozen in 1868 for abortion, but not for which ones. Justice Thomas expressly said that he wants to look at um, other rights. And he expressly talks about same-sex marriage. But interestingly, he leaves off his list, Loving versus Virginia, the interracial marriage case, and as probably most of your listeners know, he is in an interracial marriage. He's married to a white woman. So now the way it works is that the court has to have at least four votes. Four justices have to vote to review a case. So there are four justices, only four, decide they want to hear a case. Then it could come up and the justices can then uh, do what they want. Now, court said, no, this is, we, we take precedent very seriously, but we had to, we had to do this. We had to overrule precedent here because Roe was so wrongly decided. Well, given that Roe is the majority of the, of the people in the United States, 67% of, of at least the last time I looked, 60% of Americans wanted to keep Roe intact or some form of Roe intact. Yet the court says the majority of states don't like this. 
So rather than looking at the majority of people, it looks at the majority of states and it and then it so it slips into the rhetoric of states' rights. Well, we know if you look at our American history, we know how grave the idea of states' rights can be when states' rights is used as a cover for, for denying the liberty of a subset of individuals in the in our historical um, um, mark uh, that would be slavery. As we all know, that was the justification for slavery was leave it to the states. So I am very concerned. Professor LaFasso, before I get to the questions I mentioned before the break, we had a situation in Canada where there was a a law in place that uh, said if you voluntarily become so inebriated, so drunk, that you commit a crime uh, that you cannot then claim that you were too drunk to know what you were doing. The Supreme Court of Canada, just a few weeks, a couple of months ago, uh, said, no, that's constitutionally not sound. This, this cannot be. They overturned that. So the government of Canada said, well, we have to get back at this very quickly and we have to change this reality. And so we'll draft and pass another piece of law. Again, they passed and uh, drafted and passed another piece of law that says you cannot use too, the too drunk to know what I was doing excuse any longer. Is there opportunity for the government of the United States, given the fact that the Democrats uh, con- essentially controlled the government at this juncture, at least until November, we'll see what happens then, but is there opportunity for the Democrats to introduce legislation which would reinstate, if not reinstate Roe versus Wade, introduce something quite similar? It's possible, but there's a couple of problems. One is that um, in our system, we need 60% in order to go to a vote. And the Democrats only have 50 out of the 100. They have, and plus the vice president, that makes it a 51, that makes it a bare majority. So they don't quite control the Senate. And unless they're willing to get rid of what's called the filibuster, that that won't, that that can't happen. It's possible that they might be able to come up with a compromise for the life of the woman, very something very, very narrow. But my guess is they will wait until after the election if they're going to do something like that, because both sides are going to want to use this to get out as many people or the mid. Because as as you know, as everyone knows, the way um, the way votes turn out is about, you know, is about turnout. How the result of, a, of an election is really about turnout. So they're both going to try to use this to get as many people. So that's my cynical view about that. No, I agree but, with you. That, that's very cynical, but it's also appropriate. That's the way politics is. Yeah, abs- absolutely. But the other problem is, is that, and this is the scary part, is that the, the in Dobbs, the court doesn't say whether or not the federal government has the power to do that. So that law would be subject to court review and someone would surely bring it um, to challenge it. And this court could say, nope, you can't codify that. You have to leave it to the states. So let me ask you. So uh, it may not even work. Okay, given the decision of this court, um, what happens with the abortion pill? Is that still a possibility? Is that available in the United States? And if so, what happens? Well, that's really interesting. So partially depends on how um, life is defined by the legally as opposed to medically and how the um, abortion pill works. So if the abortion pill 
is an abortifacient, so it actually does something after fertilization, then um, I would, this would allow a state to, this decision allows a state to govern, to regulate that if it wishes. If the, um, if the, the pill merely prevents um, fertilization by making the womb hostile or something like that um, to sperm, then it may not. But my understanding is a lot of these pills do actually um, work after fertilization. So it really would depend on how the pill works. The other problem is, is that um, the, or, uh, that the states could then say they could define um, the unborn child as once, this would be really expanding it, but who would have thought we would be here today, you know, 10 years ago. So what if a state decides that actually it's an abortion to prevent the sperm from fertilizing the egg because that was inevitable? So that you're getting into contraception now. And that it seems to be that is potentially on the chopping block. Now, that's what Justice Thomas says. The, uh, one, the other justices do not. Uh, that's what the dissent is concerned about. The other justices are silent on that particular issue. Um, other than Kavanaugh, who does say that he he thinks it, that they we shouldn't alar- sound the alarm, uh, the alarm bells j- just yet, but it is possible that contraception would be on the chopping block. Yes. Okay. So so we have about a minute and a half. I, I'm really curious about this. Does this particular decision, and it's gotten more attention than any other Supreme Court decision in in recent history, recent memories, at least as far as as I know. Does this raise questions about the role and the place of the Supreme Court in American society? Yes, because, first of all, the court was a little bit in a damned if you do, damned if you don't. But particularly here, Chief Justice Roberts tried to avoid that if you read his concurrence and said, look, we could have all that was asked us to do was to look at this particular decision. If we had just looked at this decision and we had just said this is constitutional, there would have been a backlash, but it would have been appropriate. It would have been in line of what we normally do. Here is the first time the court has removed a right that was given, and it did it without being prompted. It wasn't the, now to be sure, once the case was before it, the state of Mississippi did ask for that. But that wasn't what was at issue. Normally, the court only looks at the narrowest grounds on which to decide a question. But here, it broadly overturned something that was immensely unpopular, and then it cloaked it in the language of, well, the majority of states don't like this, even though the majority of people are on the other side. I I have to stop here because uh, we're out of time. I don't know who wrote this. I did, but I, I apologize to the writer because I can't give a tribute to I always like to attribute. But here's what uh, the person wrote. The wealthy do it, the poor do it, and the middle class. Parents of all ages and ethnicities do it. Mothers are just as likely to do it as fathers. It happens to the chronically absent-minded and to the fanatically organized, to the college-educated and the marginally literate. In the last 10 years, it has happened to a dentist, a postal clerk, a social worker, a police officer, an accountant, a soldier. What it is, is leaving your child 
in your car in sweltering heat. Unfortunately, children do die. And uh, that was the case with Justin Todd Harris, the Georgia father, who in 2014 generated international scorn and was convicted of malice murder after leaving his 22-month-old son Cooper in a sweltering car and the boy died. I remember speaking about that case on this program to great length. Well, this week, the Georgia Supreme Court overturned the murder conviction, declaring the prosecution's presentation of evidence had been unfairly prejudicial toward Harris. His lawyer, Maddox Kilgore, had fought the appeal on the point an accident is not a crime. Now the DA has three options, retry Harris on the murder charge, not retry the case at all, or reach an agreement in which Harris would plead guilty to a lesser charge. There's also a documentary film about this uh, particular incident, this case. It's called Fatal Distraction, and you can find it on numbers of platforms, including iTunes and Amazon. And I saw the uh, review by the New York Times senior film critic, and he gave it a pretty good review, this uh, film, Fatal Distraction. So we're joined on the program today by Justin Todd Harris's parents, Reggie and Evelyn Harris. Mr. and Mrs. Harris, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm sure this is a, has been a very difficult number of years for you, your son and your grandson. I'm not sure what uh, the last few days have meant to you, but we will ask. Maddox Kilgore is Mr. Harris's lawyer. Mr. Kilgore, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. And Susan Morgan is the director and producer of Fatal Distraction. Hi, Susan. Hello. And Lara C. Thomas is the co-producer of Fatal Distraction. It was Lara who got in touch with me. Hi, Lara. Hey, thanks for having us. This is such a such an important and it's such a disturbing reality. Mr. Kilgore, so the Georgia Supreme Court decided the malice murder conviction of Mr. Harris and the death of his son Cooper, if I have this correctly, was at least partly engineered by the prosecution's insistence on directing focus during the trial toward Justin Ross Harris's alleged interest in pornography and pursuit of a woman and prostitutes he'd met online. The judge who wrote the decision included the words unfairly prejudicial, about the prosecution's presentation and added this created the emotional environment for the jury to return a guilty murder, uh, guilty of murder verdict. Do I have that correctly? What do you want to add to that, sir? Well, what I want to add, I guess, is that this is how innocent people get convicted. When you have a um, judge that uh, essentially gives the government a blank check to uh, admit any evidence they want of the nature of bad character. Um, and you, you simply put uh, the defendant's character on trial rather than trying the relevant facts that go toward, uh, 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 go toward the charge and go toward motive. This is what happens. This is the recipe for how innocent people are convicted. And uh, the Supreme Court of Georgia essentially called this judges called this judge out and said, uh, you can't just let everything in. Okay, you know, and I know, we all know, that there are many people who will say, that is murder. You left your child in your car, your child died in uh, very difficult circumstances, so it's murder. That's what a lot of people viscerally, how they react. But, um, Mr. Kilgore, you've said, and I'd like you to follow up on this, please, an accident 
is not a crime. Speak to that, please. Well, it's not. Uh, and that's not just uh, uh, lawyer talk. Um, it, legally, of course, um, uh, in Georgia, an accident is not a crime. Um, it, it is an absolute defense uh, because if, if uh, an act is done or uh, something occurs because of an accident, um, uh, or in this case, it's, it's a memory failure, uh, then there's no criminal intent. Uh, there's no intent to do anything wrong. There's no intent to to uh, do any harm. Um, uh, legally, it's 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 it can't be murder because it's an accident. And I think just as a matter of um, you know an everyman uh, understanding of the difference between committing a crime and something that's an accident, I think everybody understands that. You don't have to be read the law to know that. Uh, if, if, if something happens, uh, without design, without intent, uh, that's an accident. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows that that's not a crime. It's an interesting position for the court to consider. It's either or, and it's, I think it's a very good way to, to phrase it. Mr. and Mrs. Harris, your son was internationally portrayed as a monster. And there's always real anger toward any parent who leaves a child in an overheated vehicle and the child dies. That's inevitable societal reaction. What are your feelings about your son and about how your grandson Cooper died? What do you think? It was an accident. And I mean, how am I supposed to feel? I loved my grandson with all my heart and I love my son. And I don't, I mean, I can't blame him for an accident. And it was hurtful. Any way you look at it, when a child dies, it hurt. It hurts, and especially when it's your grandson, it hurts. Yeah. And, and 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 also the things that portrayed about Ross that he allegedly has done is we don't approve of them. No, no parents approve of them, but it has nothing to do with murdering your child. He loved Cooper, he, and we knew that. He, we know that. He cherished that child. He thought nobody had ever been a dad but him. Tell us a bit about your son. Tell us about him. He's funny. He is, he doesn't meet a stranger. He is, he's smart. He's smart. He's very, very jovial, very he, he's just a, a good guy. Friendly person. Friendly person. The film that we've uh, been telling you about that is available on various platforms like Amazon and iTunes is Fatal Distraction. Susan Morgan is the director. Lara C. Thomas is the co-producer. I'll ask you both to uh, Susan and Lara to approach this question. Uh, so I read a positive review of your film, which is great. What was the most difficult aspect of sharing this story with a viewing public, because Justin Ross Harris was talked about openly as a monster in 2014. What was the hardest thing for you to do? Um, well, I'll start. Um, Jean Weingarten, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, wrote an article called Fatal Distraction. And in that article, he describes how the ordinary person has a safety mechanism. 
if we describe someone else as a monster, then these accidents cannot happen to us, to you or to I, to myself. They can only happen to someone who's a monster. And I think that the hardest journey we've had to fight is the court of public opinion because everyone believes that these accidents could never happen to them, but they happen with frightening regularity. During the summer months, two or three children die per week in the United States. That's a really scary, scary number. Uh, did you have an opinion of Mr. Harris when you began the film, and did you change? Did the opinion change at all while you were filming it? Absolutely. I, like the rest of the public, was subjected to all this salacious nonsense, many lies that were written about and talked about in the media. So, of course, I thought that perhaps he was guilty. But I talked to all the other parents that I have interviewed over the years who have suffered this accident, and I talked to Jeanette Fennell of Kids and Cars Safety. Lara and I began investigating, and what we found was that the events of the day of Justin Ross Harris's accident were exactly like the events of all the other parents. The parent is absolutely convinced that they have dropped their child safely off at daycare. Yeah, I've heard that so many times in all the cases. Uh, Mr. Kilgore, so the district attorney has three choices, right? Walk away, retry the case, or work out a plea arrangement. In the, tell us what your thoughts are about that. And in the meantime, does Mr. Harris remain in custody? Sure. Well, the first step is going to be the district attorney's office will have an opportunity to uh, petition the Supreme Court of Georgia to reconsider its decision in this opinion. Um, uh, that's step one. Listen, we were not at all surprised at this result. Uh, we believed all along since 2016 that this conviction was going to be overturned. So we're not at all surprised by that. Uh, if there's any surprise, it's that the, the opinion was not unanimous. There were three justices of the nine-judge court, uh, Supreme Court of Georgia, who, uh, for one reason or another, uh, uh, dissented to this opinion. And so what the uh, district attorney's office is going to do first is they're going to petition the court to uh, uh, think about this decision again. Uh, I do not believe that's going to be successful because the majority uh, in this written opinion, it's about 135 pages long um, and it's extremely, extremely detailed. Um, and uh, I'd like to I'd like to share with you something that I believe is is really significant in this opinion. Uh, the state's theory in this case of motive was that Ross uh, intentionally tortured and murdered his young son, who he loved very much, so that he would be able to get a divorce from his wife in order to philander with other, with other women. Here's what the court said. It was not a reasonable inference that a man would believe that he had to kill his child to escape his marriage. 
the state's weakly supported motive theory based on multiple inferences was contradicted by substantial evidence that appellant Ross loved and cared for his young son and had never mistreated Cooper, including testimony from Leanna, who, who by that time had divorced Ross. Daycare, uh, uh, Cooper's daycare teachers and Ross's and Leanna's family members and friends. The evidence was overwhelming uh, from everyone who knew Ross that he loved, 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 worshipped that little boy. All right, Mr. Uh, and Mrs. Harris, Reggie and Evelyn Harris, I want you to have the last word. Please uh, share with us what, what you think our listeners need to know, because I'm going to be asking our, our listeners to call in and ask whether they believe this was a crime or a terrible accident for which a parent should or should not be criminally charged what uh, or unconvicted what do you want to say mr and mrs harris i just want to say ross is innocent of any charge of murder any any he's innocent of ever wanting anything bad to happen to cooper because he loved cooper very very much and i mean this is a man who stops the traffic on the one of the busiest streets in Tuscaloosa to save a dog who was laying in the street? I mean, he would not. He would never do something like that. Never. Okay. He loved that baby. He thought no man had ever had a baby but him. I, I, I would like to address to all the listeners that one of the, one of the reasons we're doing this interview and other interviews is to save the lives of other children. Oh, yeah. yeah. We, and what people don't understand is, is they think, most people think, I, could lo I love my child too much to do this. It yeah. could not happen to me, but it happens to, it, it happens to judges, it happens to, to lawyers, it happens to anybody. Yeah. And anybody that gets a change in their routine, in their daily lives, your brain, your brain is an automatic power. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. In Canada, if you drive drunk and you kill a person, you're not going away for very long at all. Three years, maybe four years, will be the sentence. You'll maybe do 18 months, 20 months. You'll get a license suspension, but that's about it. If you kill multiples of people, you're going to get more time. But how much time will you actually spend in jail? Not much. And earlier in the week, very early in the week, we heard about Edward Lake committing suicide. His three children were killed by convicted drunk driver Marco Muzzo. And I can't imagine what uh, Mr. Lake and the family went through, the surviving family members are going through now. We're about to talk to Sherry Arsenault. I've talked to Sherry on uh, many occasions over the last 10 years. Her son Bradley was in a car with two friends, 
when the car was hit by a drunk driver of a pickup traveling at almost 200 kilometers an hour. He received eight years in prison and a driving suspension for life. Well, three years after the conviction, the eight-year conviction, the individual was eligible for parole. That's the way it works in Canada. There is an attitude in this country that it goes like this. There but for the grace of God go I. So I could have been that person. So I can't be too hard on that person because by extension, I'm being hard on myself. It's an oversight. I drove drunk. It's an oversight. No, it isn't. You kill somebody and drive while you're driving and you're drunk, you should get a second-degree murder charge. At the very least, manslaughter in a very significant prison time because you've taken a life. We also have the reality of the Supreme Court of this country just a few weeks ago deciding that uh, the argument that I was too drunk to know what I was doing actually was valid. To send people away and, and deny them the right to say I was too drunk to know what I was doing was actually it was, it wasn't fair, so they, they changed it. It wasn't constitutionally fair. I'll give the government of this country credit for this, all the parties, because they very quickly, and Lametti, the, gov the Attorney General, spearheaded this, they changed the law. So uh, once again, if you voluntarily get drunk and you drive and you commit mayhem, you don't get that get-out-of-jail-free card. I was too drunk to know what I was doing. What an idiotic, what an absolutely idiotic, irresponsible attitude. All right. Sherry Arsenault. How are you, Sherry? Oh, very good. Thanks, Roy. You just uh, dis described this scenario in Canada perfectly. It is, isn't it? When you heard about Edward Lake committing suicide, I, I've known you for years, and I'm always trying to be very careful in what I ask you because I know I have an idea of, of what, what you're going through still. When you heard of the suicide of Edward Lake, how did you react? My stomach fell out. Um, I wanted to say I couldn't believe it, but I could, and, and that's the terrible part. You know, I can only assume assume how he felt because I don't know for sure. But my feeling is because I had it, and I still do many days. Is uh, he simply wanted to be with his children? It's he he couldn't overcome that, and and I know that feeling all too well. It wouldn't be something I would take my life, but you don't know how hard I wish lightning would strike me. Many, many times. Just, I just want, when you don't get that opportunity to hug your child, even say goodbye, there's nothing you wouldn't do to be with them again. Yeah. So your son Bradley and his two friends died because Jonathan Pratt, who was driving at almost 200 kilometers an hour, when his pickup truck hit the car your son and his friends were in. That's yeah. how he died. And Pratt had a blood alcohol level two and a half times the legal limit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what was, do you remember what your expectation was of the Canadian justice system? Well, you know, when you've never been through our, our justice system before, it's, uh, you know, you, you assume, you assume at least the time will fit the crime. 
and um, you know, it took three years to even come to a conclusion in court. And in the end, he spends less than three years in jail. And you know, it's even worse than that, to be honest. He, he was given an eight-year sentence with manslaughter actually attached. Within one eighth of their sentence, they are being released on weekends to be with their families or do what they do, I guess. Within one eighth, they're doing that. And in less than, at one third, they apply for day parole and full parole. And in my case, and identical in the, in the Marco Muzo case, they're granted parole. You know, granted day parole pretty close to after they are sentenced. And that, that alone is so heartbreaking and hard to, hard to take. You have been fighting so hard over these years to get governments to listen and governments to change their minds. He's never apologized to you, has he, Sherry? Sherry? Through all the parole board hearings and you know, he can't, uh, he doesn't say their names. Uh, he has, uh, in, in, he describes it as he's the victim. And, you know, what's even more heartbreaking than that is the parole board listens to that and does not question it, does not question it. You know, there's there's such serious problems in all areas of our justice system. To me, the whole system is completely broken, especially concerning victims, and it needs a complete rehaul. And you wrote our that victims are disregarded and then re-victimized by the justice system. And you saw a parallel as well between the cases of Marco Muzzo, responsible for the deaths in the Edwards Lake family, and Pratt, who killed your son and his two friends. You saw a parallel between those cases. I saw complete 100% parallels. In fact, it's hard to believe, but they literally copy and paste their decisions. It was word for word, same decision as in the Marco Muso case. Uh, so, you know, that all that does is re-victimize, and I know that it was unbelievably hard on, on the Navelle Lake family because... It, you know, there's a, you realize there's not even a whole lot of thought that goes into their decisions. It's a copy and paste uh, thing that they do. It's just it's it's unbelievable. It's copy and paste decision. Yeah. You are a genuinely kind person because when you and I talked off the air the day before yesterday, you said to me. And we were talking about Marco Muzzo, and you said you wouldn't be surprised if he feels bad about what he did, really feels bad about what he did. So I think you're a very, very kind human being, and you, but justice is required. And what really is, is also dis, so disturbing, Sherry, is people don't appear to be particularly reluctant to drive drunk and or maybe high. Mm-hmm. No, it's... Um People, people think it will never happen to them, and 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 people on the other hand think that they'll never be a victim. So, you know, it's both. That. People can drive 
home impaired or or high, like you say, hundreds of times in their lives and they make it home safely. And they just honestly don't believe that it will ever happen to them. But in my view, the minute you get in your car and turn that key, whether you get home safely, kill someone, kill yourself, you're just as culpable as someone who does, in fact, kill someone. It's The crime is being committed as soon as you drive. You have uh, addressed politicians on this. You've talked to them individually. You've spoken at uh, parliamentary committees, been uh, ignored rather clearly by at least one MP. I don't know if you want to name him or not. That's up to you. But what about that? And, and what do you try to tell them about what appropriate justice is? And do they just not listen to you at all? Well, our, our current government refuses to listen to victims. And, you know, their main concern is about the offenders and how to help them. Uh, you know, in the last eight years, I think it was four bills that I worked worked on, every single one of them, they would not even vote for an amendment, a slight amendment to modernize our laws regarding impaired driving causing death. And uh, yes, I will name that MP. It was Mr. Randy Bosenalt. He he was playing on three phones while I was giving my uh, my presentation, not looking at me once, not asking one question. And that was in two or three committees. That's so troubling. That is so, so disturbing. It's, 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 it's one of those things where this, this government just refuses to listen to victims. Yeah. And, and you know, we've, we've heard this, and we've heard it for years. And occasionally there's public uh, interest, and there's drive to get things changed. And then some things do change because the politicians are keenly aware that there's public demand. And then when the demand dies down, so it is the interest. And we're back well, to square one. You know, Roy, we, a few of us uh, mothers and fathers, families, complete families, we got received one by one handwritten, not an internet petition, over 30,000 signatures signatures, address, phone number, and that was all handed in to to our um, parliament. And nobody talked, it was the biggest uh, survey done demanding change, and, you know, I don't even know where it is. There. Dan McTagg, that gas price wizard on Twitter, Canadians for Affordable Energy founder and president about what our situation is going to look like as far as gasoline costs, diesel costs are concerned over the next five, six, seven days. We're going to do this on Sundays with Dan. Dan, thanks very much. So, uh, you know, we're in five provinces from Ontario through to British Columbia. If we can focus on them, what are we looking at over the next few days? Well, we're going to look at prices uh, dropping uh, in uh in places like Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and central BC. And they should have dropped uh, last week. Uh, the uh, gas stations are doing extraordinarily well. There has been a correction in the market downwards. Although in the end of this week, we start to see uh, gasoline and diesel and, uh, of course, uh, petroleum. petroleum companies, uh, oil companies, uh, making a little bit more money uh, with oil going back up a little bit. So all's well that ends well. But uh, it looks like we're going to see a bit more of a quiet week as we head in towards the long weekend. 
for uh, places like Ontario, uh, Quebec even, uh, and uh, for Vancouver. Uh, I'm not expecting much of a change, maybe a two or three cent differential up or down. It'll really mean uh, looking at the mood of the markets this week and what is now truly going to be that heavy duty uh, you know, demand period for gasoline. Canada, July 1st, uh, Canada Day long weekend coming up, and of course the United States, same weekend uh, on July the 4th. Yeah. Are we still over $2 a litre? For the week? We have actually remained above, as an average, uh, $2 a litre in Canada, barely. Uh, we're about 201 right now. Uh, we could go a little higher as a result of the increases we saw in Ontario today, net $0.04 cents a litre, uh, and Quebec as well. So that could push prices back up. I saw that, uh, as I predicted a couple of days ago, uh, Vancouver dropped to uh, 159 now back up to 220.9. So a sign that things could get a little bit more expensive. I think after this week, though, Roy, a lot of factors are going to play into driving prices likely higher. Uh, demand is still very strong. Supply is not there. And look at the hurricanes now starting to develop uh, early in the season. But uh, we're starting to see some troubling signs there in the uh, famous U.S. Gulf Coast, home to 50% of U.S. refinery capacity. Yeah. So we're not looking at a great and glorious dollar seventy a liter. No, I don't think you're going to see that. <laughs> Which is, would have sounded bizarre a year ago. Yeah, it would have. Now, we, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, Ontario should be seeing a five cent, six cent decrease. Hopefully, uh, on July the first. I'm not sure what that's at. I don't have, uh, you know, a direct read in what the province is going to do. But I thought the commitment was July first. That comes up uh, therefore this Friday. We could see prices in Ontario move back down towards a dollar ninety five a liter. Oh, what a thrill! Um, if we were selling our our oil and our natural gas to the world. If we had the capacity, the capability to do that, how much, I'm just a wild guess here, just a wild number, how much would we be taking in on a monthly basis, do you know? Uh, well, we'd be raking in $160 million a day in economic, uh, in economic activity. Um, I think beyond that, though, we would be looking at uh, a, a scenario where the Canadian dollar would increase by about 30 cents, 30%. That would drop your gas prices across Canada roughly about 34 cents a litre on average. And, of course, more oil into the global markets. Canadian oil would mean uh, oil pushed down from $110 a barrel, $105 a barrel, probably down to about 75 or 80 Another savings of another 20 25 I know this is coulda, shoulda, woulda, but, my goodness, uh, Canadians have an option. Third largest uh, supply yeah. uh, of, of oil and massive amounts for natural gas. By the way, Roy, it does scare me a little bit on the natural gas side. We're short of nitrogen. That's going to leave significant shortages on the food side. I'll leave that with you and Dr. Sylvain Charlebois to talk about that. But I, I think it's an issue that's going to uh, become more and more current. It's going to raise prices for bread uh, come the, uh, you know late summer. Uh, but more importantly, it's going to uh, create uh, massive uh, food shortages globally. Well, Professor Charlebois was on the show yesterday at Food Professor on Twitter from Dalhousie University, yep. and he said uh, that the, the current federal government, instead of making things easier and less expensive or as, as easy as they possibly can, were actually taking action to make things more difficult and more expensive for Canadians, sure. not for the rest of the world, but for Canadians. Yeah, it's not it's not good, Roy. And I, look, I, I'm one of those that thinks energy is extremely important. It happens to be the source of everything we do. But uh, for my old colleagues who are still in politics, uh, when you start messing around with the price of food, it doesn't matter what political stripe you happen to be part of. It uh, hurts everybody, and uh, this government's got to smarten up. 
Yeah. One one thing I've always wanted to ask you, and we have a minute here, so I will. What is what do you focus on when you get up in the morning? And you know what you're doing. You've got all these programs and all this knowledge about what happens with energy issues and gas prices and diesel and natural gas. What do you focus on, Dan? The headlines, the big headlines in Europe, uh, because they're up several hours before us, uh, looking at what's happening, what they see in the, the day will yield. Some of the big headlines they deal with finances. Those are big things. Then I'll start looking at where the markets go. Uh, I'll go on Bloomberg Energy or I'll go to uh, Opus or someone like that and start looking at where gasoline prices are trading uh, because this time of year gasoline moves you know, somewhat no longer in sync with oil during the summer months, but during the winter it does. I'll be looking at both those. And then, of course, the most important part of this of late, and I'd say the past five, seven years, killing pipelines, I have to look at the Canadian dollar and its weakness because that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, one of the main advantages the world has over Canada, other producing nations, is that we have a Canadian dollar, you know, that uh, is based on the, the U.S. greenback. We're not selling enough oil. We're not getting nothing the world's interested in. That's costing you and I an additional 30 35% loss in uh, purchases power. And that's called inflation, call that uh, food prices, everything you want to talk about. It's critical. And that's what I look at in the morning. It's depressing seeing sometimes. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.